Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, September 30th, 2016. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining him in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, Tiffany, Erica, Gabby, and Elliot today. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, um, today our topic is Big Pharma Karma, Magic Bullets and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness, and we will be talking about the book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. So you have all these conditions, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, ADHD, major depression, anxiety disorders. There is a rising epidemic of quote-unquote madness in America. Nearly 78 million Americans take psychiatric drugs, and there are over 6 million people rendered permanently disabled by a psychiatric, psychiatric disorder. Uh, once, what, what, what was once viewed as a temporary emotional and psychological crisis has now become a lifelong illness that is only treatable with psychiatric medications, um, <clears throat> you know, according to the establishment. And so today uh, we are going to take a closer look at the ill-advised biological notion of mental illness. We are not saying that people don't have problems. We are saying that it is mislabeled and misunderstood. Um, and we want to talk about the uh, quote-unquote magic bullet drugs uh, and how they are they're hurting rather than helping uh, people who have um, any kind of you know mental conditions. Um, so we want to uh, dive into that, um, raise some questions about it, talk about you know is it is it really that well understood? Uh, you know, do doctors have a a picture of this in such a way that they can justifiably prescribe medications to people who they deem to have condition A, condition B, etc. Um, so let's, uh, let's get right into it. I guess, uh, first of all, would you guys like to start with one of the clips to, uh, to get us going? This is a, uh, Stefan Molyneux, uh, if anybody's familiar with him, uh, uh, interview with the author of Anatomy of an Epidemic, uh, and it's about how there is no long-term evidence of the benefits of medication. Uh, if we have that available, let's check that out and then we'll come back and discuss. Okay. Yeah, so, and let's just explain this to your readers. So one of the things I was looking at is, you know, how do medications shape long-term outcomes of major mental disorders, schizophrenia, anxiety, bipolar, depression, and then also look at what's happening to kids long-term. And so one of the first things I tried to do was find out the evidence that shows that the medications are improving the long-term course of these disorders. And because, of course, we, we would expect that there, there would be that evidence. And what the first surprise really is that there isn't. <laughs> in other words, even those who are very much believers in this paradigm of care and promote it um, will say, listen, when it comes to long-term evidence, we just don't have any, which is really a rather startling admission after 50 years of using the medications that you... There's no evidence that surfaced in whatever types of research they've done that shows they're improving outcomes. So that's, you, you talk about the lack of ambivalence. It's, it's not like you have a, a body of evidence out here saying that the medications are sort of worsening long-term outcomes and making things more chronic when you look at the long-term perspective and you have another body of evidence over here sort of contradictory saying, no, this is where it shows the evidence that we're improving long-term outcomes. Instead, when you try to find the pro side of the story, by pro I mean those 
that support the common wisdom is an, it, there's this uh, instant admission that we don't have that evidence. And by the way, that has been um, sort of confirmed in response to the book. So as you know, and we can talk about this, the book does challenge conventional wisdom, and it says, listen, science doesn't support conventional societal beliefs. And, and, and you know, that's a, a book and a conclusion that upsets a lot of people and a lot of moneyed interests. And so there has been some individuals, uh, basically psychiatrists who take money from pharmaceutical companies who said, oh, Whitaker's wrong, and, you know, sort of attacked me. But what's interesting, in those attacks, nobody has been able to point to evidence saying, and here's here's what he missed in terms of compelling evidence showing that we're improving long-term outcomes. And my favorite sort of review of this sort, someone was, some psych, a psychiatrist was writing in on in one of these forums sort of criticizing me and saying, well, listen, we wouldn't have to listen to Whitaker and these sort of attacks if we just had some evidence that our drugs improve long-term outcomes. And the funny thing, of course, is he didn't under—he didn't see how that was so revealing. And he, you know, he's right. If if there were compelling evidence, then then a book like mine wouldn't be out there. Whitaker makes some good points there, and. Um that can kind of get us into the uh, our first uh, sort of topic, which is this magic bullet theory. Well, let's um, um, just go over some of these medications that are given out like candy. Yeah. First, sure. you, we can, um, there's a antidepressants. Most popular one is Prozac, also called fluoxetine, has fluoride in it. There's Paxil, Celexa, Lexapro, Zoloft, Cymbalta, Effexor, Wellbutrin, Remeron, and then you have the antipsychotics given to schizophrenics and people in the manic phase of bipolar. Um, some old ones are Thorazine and Haldol and Meloril. I don't know if any of our listeners have heard of those. And then they have the newer ones, the Seroquel, Risperdal, Zyprexa, Abilify, Clozaril, and uh, there's the benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin and Valium and Ativan, and then there are mood stabilizers like Lithium and Tegretol. So those are just some of the the drugs that are given to psychiatric patients. And the mood stabilizers, they they could be antiepileptics. Yeah. And, uh, yes, and they could be like lithium, which is typically for bipolar disorder. So it's quite a cocktail out there. Yeah, and that's not even all of them. That's not even counting the ones that they give to kids. Yeah. The most representative one is um, Ritalin for ADHD. Mm -hmm. Well, now, Ativan, too, is gaining traction, isn't it, for ADHD? Um, Adderall. Adderall, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think it's basically a, about, yes. a synthetic speed. Crystal meth. Well, it is an amphetamine, isn't it? Yes. It yeah. is. And it's the most uh, toxic one from all the family of um, stimulants. And that's the one that they chose to give for ADHD kids. Great choice. Yes. Yeah. So don't don't do meth, but you know, go to your doctor and get some Adderall. 
Yeah, and they even come candy flavored, which is really, really. That's wow. Yeah, that like, is mommy, unbelievable. My meds <laughs> taste like grape. <laughs> well, that's Gabby, the thing though, with um, a lot of these medications. A lot of times, it doesn't really matter which particular diagnosis that you have. Um, working in the industry, Elliot, you do too. Um, people think that, you know, if you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, you only take these medications. And if you have a, another diagnosis, you take some other medications. But really, they give them out to people. It doesn't really matter what their diagnosis is because a lot of it is just to tranquilize people and to get them from acting out or exhibiting certain behaviors that are bothersome. Mm -hmm. So mm. it kind of doesn't matter what your diagnosis is. All of those medications can be given for any reason. It's just up to the doctor. And the diagnoses themselves, I mean, if you are a lifelong psychiatric patient, you could have several different diagnoses depending on how you present to a particular doctor. And different doctors will disagree on what your diagnosis might be. And there's not really any test. Like they say that, uh, you know, you might have low levels of serotonin or you might have too much dopamine, but you never go into a psychiatrist's office and they give you a blood test to test your levels of particular neurotransmitters. That never happens. But, Yo, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the crux of... Oh, I'm sorry. That's a very interesting concept because um, when all these psychiatric drugs were studied, uh, there was um, no research on the diseases um, per se. Like they didn't know what was going on exactly on schizophrenia or on ADHD, which didn't exist back then in the 40s. They actually created the drugs first, um, and it was an inheritance of World War II toxic chemicals like they will give an antibiotic to a person and they will notice like there was a mood change they said oh maybe we can make a drug out of this mm -hmm. so that's what they did you know stuff like and mm -hmm. so the drugs came first and then they have to like you know feed that drug to a particular disease and that's how the research started on bio um, biological psychiatric yeah and that's what was called the magic bullets right yeah, they had to create a market for the drugs they already had. Yeah, magic bullet, because um, back then penicillin was very popular to treat infections. It was the magic bullet, literally, of medicine. Like now people will not die of these terrible infections because we have penicillin and antibiotics. And psychiatry wanted to be part of that, you know, of that game. So, yes. Oh, well, that's the, cor the cornerstone of the controversy around the DSM, right? Is that it's it's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but it's uh, there is no uh, scientific diagnost diagnostic test for these conditions. Exactly. It's totally arbitrary because they came all with this old uh, diagnostic criteria, and you will have a disease if you meet five of the nine criteria. But why not six criteria or seven? You know, <laughs> it's totally arbitrary. <laughs> and anyway, nowadays most people don't even meet one or two criteria, and they, they're given psychiatric drugs anyway. So there you go. Yeah, if I um, if I remember correctly, in um, Robert Whittaker's book *Anatomy of an Epidemic*, um, he speaks about how 
I think it was in the 80s, that um, common, basically public um, confidence in the um, in psychiatry in and of itself um, was 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 basically getting quite bad. You know, people didn't trust um, that psychiatrist knew how to do their job properly. And so I think it was with the introduction of the DSM-3 that um, they began to try heavily market these products as if they were this magic bullet for um, for any particular illness. And so what they started to do was um, apply marketing techniques um, to selling these products. And, um, for instance, they would say, oh, are you feeling down and depressed? Well, did you know that there are um, so many people in the U.S., I don't know, maybe 30,000 in the U.S. who suffer from depression and um, they go undiagnosed? Um, you know, so they they did this with lots of different, I guess, common ailments that people go through when they, um, you know, when they experience some sort of stress in their life and that naturally would pass um, in time. You know, they would naturally go through this stage of, say, uh, depressive symptoms and then they would come out of it um, and they would be fine. But what they did was they essentially placed a label on this and started saying, okay, if you have these symptoms, then we have the product just for you and this can fix your issues. And therefore, you had this boom in people who were going to these psychiatrists essentially um, you know, explaining their symptoms, and this was when it really kicked off. That you know they were they were being given these um these tablets that were supposedly meant to work, but there was actually very very little research um to back up any of it. Yeah, so much of it was marketing. I guess psychiatrists back in that time, like the uh, the seventies and early eighties, they found that they were in a competition with social workers and psychologists. And the only thing that they could do that the social workers and psychologists couldn't do was prescribe medications. So in order to make themselves feel relevant and feel like real doctors who were actually, you know, giving tr real treatments to people, they pulled out the prescription pad. And with the help of Big Pharma, they created this whole idea that the, um, if you have some kind of mental illness or you're going through some kind of emotional crisis, it's due to some kind of uh, chemical imbalance in your brain. So that's how they medicalized the whole issue and made themselves relevant again. Yeah. It is interesting because back then in the 50s, they were studying the chemicals in the brain and they were speculating about how neurons communicated with each other in the brain through the synapses. And uh, the electrical property of the synapse was very popular back then. But then the chemical, this chemical hypothesis took over and they just focused on, oh, there must be a chemical imbalance, a chemical imbalance. So we can give our drugs, basically. So the, um, the idea of the, the chemical imbalance uh, is actually kind of a misnomer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a way to describe something that's not fully understood but then the approach that's taken uh, with these medications is, is actually causing a legitimate chemical imbalance. Absolutely. And that's what Robert Whitaker writes in his book. Like, is the, is the cure worse than the illness? Are these drugs helping people or are they actually creating a chemical imbalance in the first place? 
And another scary thing that he pointed out in the book is that since 1955 or so, when Thorazine first came out and hit the scene, they started giving that out. They've noticed that more and more people are becoming disabled, as in they have to apply for government benefits because they cannot work and they can't function really in society. So he said something like 850 people every day enroll in uh, supplemental security income or uh, social security disability. It is interesting that you mentioned Taurusine because in some studies, um, speaking about the chemical imbalance, they saw that Taurusine blocks up to 70 or 90% of dopamine receptors in the brain. So what does your brain does when this happens? Okay, it may be, it might silence an, a, a psychotic episode, but then your brain starts to produce like more receptors or more dopamine, dopamine as a compensation. There's a point like, you know, it breaks all the balance in your brain. And that's why some people who stop taurusine after a long period of time, they have really severe withdrawal symptoms, like with completely uncontrollable psychotic episodes that they just, you know, basically need to go back to medicine because the, the brain itself has completely changed. You know, all the overcompensations lead to structural changes in the brain that, you know, now you have like a hypersensitive state of psychosis, you know. Yeah, and they use that as an excuse to say that, oh, the meds are working. So, you know, you have to stay on the meds. You have to stay on them for your whole life. You know, you're like a diabetic. You need your insulin. So, yeah, they use that as an excuse to keep people on meds for a lifetime just because they have some withdrawal symptoms when they get off. These these meds in and of themselves, you know, as we've just been speaking about, um, really do induce uh, real chemical imbalances in the brain. Um, like, Gabby, what you just said about the... Um, the dopamine drugs, uh, was it Thorazine? And there's also, it's also similar with the um, selective serotonin uptake um, inhibitors. The SSRIs, like commonly known as um, Prozac, uh, antidepressant drugs. And um, what they do is they basically block um, the reuptake of uh, neurotransmitter called serotonin. Um, and this is meant to allow more of it to bind to the receptor. And because it's based on the theory that ser serotonin, uh, you know, helps us feel happy or whatever, which I think is really debatable anyway. But, um, but what happens in this state is the, the function of the, the, the brain and it actually it induces, um, structural changes. So, um, if you have someone who starts taking one of these antidepressant drugs, um, neurons, uh, they begin to release less serotonin and to downregulate, um, or in other words, decrease the number of serotonin receptors by up to 50%. Um, and so as part of this adaptation process, um, there are also changes in intracellular signaling pathways and gene expression. So after a few weeks of taking these drugs, the patient's brain is functioning in a manner that is qualitatively as well as quantitatively different from the normal state. Now that was a um, a quote from from the book that we, we're talking about, um, and the author Robert Whitaker basically goes on to say that 
say that in short, in light of this information, um, psychiatric drugs actually induce pathology. Uh, they don't cure it. <laughs> so if you didn't have a chemical imbalance to start with, then by taking these drugs, you very likely do have a chemical imbalance. Uh, that's very true. I think the best example is the benzo trap that he talks about, which has to do with, um, for example, any benzodiazepine. You know, it could be Xanax, um, Valium. It affects how uh, the levels of your GABA receptors in your brain, which is gamma aminobutyric acid. Your brain starts to release less GABA, and uh, so it creates like a state of hyperactivity during withdrawal symptoms. And what they have seen in studies is that the structural damage might be irreversible. You know, after X numbers of years, you know, the damage could be irreversible pretty much. Wow. What's interesting about the benzo trap too is the whole Valium craze that happened. You know, mother's little helper. And all these housewives that uh, weren't necessarily even in the working force at that time. And uh, they d deemed these drugs a uh, balm for the walking wounded. And uh, they started to notice the addictive properties, so much so that in 1975, the uh, Department of Justice classified benzos as a Schedule Four drug under the Controlled Substance Act. Controlled Substance Act. And Vogue magazine came out to explain, and other magazines at the time, how Valium can lead to uh, addiction far worse than heroin. So as Robert Whitaker said in his book, it was the happiness pill of the 1950s was turning into the misery pill of the 1970s. And uh, he was saying also that in 2002, 69 million prescriptions increased to 83 million in 2007, about the amount that was written at the height of the Valium craze in 1973. So even though they knew the addictive properties of these benzos, and it was coming out in mainstream magazines, they continued to push forward with it. As they always do, contrary to the evidence otherwise. And another no, I think this on... on its Oh, I, just, I think that on its face, it, you know, there are many, many examples that you can take to discredit the uh, the FDA, um, you know. But there, I mean, I, I go back and forth between saying that there, it's it's an agency that's made up of people who are trying to do the right thing. Perhaps there are some. Uh, I don't I don't know what the percentage is, but the fact that they would make these Schedule Four. Uh, you know, which is way, way down on the scale, mm -hmm. uh, it is ridiculous to me because they are as dangerous, if not more, than other opiates. Um, so it's frustrating. Especially considering that marijuana that actually does have uh, medicinal properties and not the debilitating side effects that these psych drugs do is a Schedule One. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tiff, I'm sorry I cut you off. What were you going to say there? Oh, uh, just another in a long list of all the bad things that these drugs do to the brain is that they cause uh, basal ganglia swelling. 
and the basal ganglia is a part of the brain, kind of down at the bottom of the forebrain. And it controls voluntary movements, uh, procedural learning, um, cognition, emotion, and it helps you determine which behaviors to execute. So when that area of the brain is damaged, you get some really, really bad psychotic symptoms. You get a lot of disorganized behaviors. And the fact that the, the drugs also cause brain shrinkage. I remember when I was in working in hospital, they would do MRIs occasionally on some of these patients, and they'd show, show that the, the patients were losing white matter in their brains. And everybody was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's just the course of the illness. You know, they have Alzheimer's or they have schizophrenia and they've had it for so long. This is the effect of their illness. But really, it's the drug that's doing it. So like we we're saying, the yeah. cure is worse than the, the disease because also especially with the benzos, you get like a deterioration in personal relationships, social interactions, the ability to even have empathy or cope. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, the volume, you know, mother's little helper, she stressed out about housework and whatnot, she takes these drugs, gets addicted, and then all of a sudden everything falls apart and lo and behold, she becomes bipolar 20 years later or That's the thing, the bipolar boom. You know that uh, the bipolar disorder was pretty rare in the past, and people who had it, they will have like four, three or four manic episodes per year. Um, and now, you know, we have patients, you know, who have like four or five episodes per month or per week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what was interesting about the um, the bipolar subject was that um, Robert Whitaker spoke about he calls it some calls it something called um, the SSRI path to disabling mental illness. Can, um, sorry, actually, that's the wrong bit. Basically, it explains how um, a patient who is say depressed and they are um, they are prescribed SSRIs. They start taking these antidepressants and as a side effect of the antidepressants, they begin to suffer manic and psychotic episodes. So they go back to their doctor and at this point they are diagnosed as bipolar. When in fact, the reason for the psychotic episode may not have been bipolar whatsoever. It may have been actually as a, um, a side effect of the antidepressant medication that they were first prescribed. Anyway, so they're prescribed bipolar, and then to go along with that, they are um, they're prescribed antipsychotic medication, um, and this is in conjunction with the antidepressants. And now they're on like a cocktail of different drugs, um, and this begins to spiral because with each drug that you take, there are other side effects, and so these people continue to be prescribed more and more and more drugs, and eventually. They've got, you know, you could be on 10, 12, 13 different drugs at one point, all to to sort of counteract the side effects of each other. Mm-hmm. And he calls this the um, the road along to the permanent disability. You know, this can, like, completely debilitate someone and remove them from society and, and, and pr- 
prevent them from being able to live a functional life. Um, and this all began with the prescription of the initial antidepressant. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really depressing to think that many people who, who are prescribed this or they are diagnosed with depression, it's like the, the start of the, the, the path towards pure disintegration in their lives. And they eventually um, become essentially a strain on society because they cannot work and they may need to go into some psychiatric hospital or whatever. And their life is essentially ruined. Um, and it can be linked back to, to these pharmaceuticals. Well, speaking of yeah, drug really cocktails, is. there's a, it's one thing to give someone one drug that they take for the rest of their lives. But most of these people are on a bunch of different drugs. They might be on an antipsychotic. They might be on something to help them sleep. They might be on an anti-anxiety or an antidepressant medication. And I've had people ask me, like, is it safe to take all of these medications together? Like, and I will just have to tell them straight out, I cannot find any studies that show what the effects are of taking different medications altogether. No one knows how they interact with one another. And it didn't stop people from taking them, but, you know, there's really no information really out there. And it wasn't until I came across this information that, I mean, I could see with my own eyes that nobody was getting better. But to actually see how people worsen and worsen over the years just by taking all of these medications, it's really sad to see. And it makes me depressed just talking about it. But, um, yeah. That's a very good reason to be depressed. Just to correct something I said before, so you can you you guys can have an idea how bad it is. Like bipolar disorder, in the past people have four episodes episodes, you know, per life. Now it is four episodes per year, mm -hmm. as an average. Well, there have been studies that uh, Robert Whitaker mentioned in, in his book about, like, early, in the early days, I don't know if many people do that now, but when they first started coming out with these uh, neuroleptic drugs or antipsychotic medications, they would do studies, like, uh, they put one group on the neuroleptic medication, and they put another group on a placebo. And they found that, at first, uh, the people who got the medication their psychotic symptoms did go away faster than the ones that weren't on them. Like the people were in the control group with the placebo, they had the psychotic symptoms and it would just take them a little longer to get over it. But then they uh, followed these patients over time and they found that like a year or six months later, the people who took the the psychiatric medications, their symptoms actually got worse and they had a greater chance of relapsing or ending up back in the hospital with a psychotic episode. So in the short term, the drugs may help to calm you down if you're having a psychotic outbreak. But in the long term, it really does nothing for you and actually makes your symptoms worse. Yeah. Well, regarding the, um, <clears throat> you know, the idea of, of the interactions and, and what the understanding of them is, I mean, you know, there's no way that they could get a clinical trial approved where you might give somebody two SSRIs, a benzo, and an antipsychotic mm -hmm. altogether. 
they wouldn't even be able to get, get near getting that approved for an actual test. But you get those independently pushed onto the market and let the doctors do it. You know, the, they so then they, at that point they can describe prescribe people whatever drugs they want, and they say, well, you know, the interactions aren't really well understood, but try this. Uh, and it, it, you know, it's it's essentially um, the clinical trial taking place in the public on a day to day basis with, with no you know checks and balances. There is so much corruption, you know. In the book, Whitaker portrays very well how difficult it was for him to dig out all these studies where there were no drugs given just to see the long-term outcomes, you know. Mm -hmm. Did people fare better without drugs? And he found a very interesting study made by WHO, the World Health Organization, which showed that schizophrenics uh, had a better outcome in Colombia, Nigeria, and India. And he went, uh, searched the study, and he found out that up to 83% of patients never took drugs. That, that was a treatment for them. And the funny thing is that the press release for that study was basically uh, mainstream medicine was saying that schizophrenics responded better to treatments in Nigeria and India. That's totally misleading because they never received any treatment to, to begin with. So they, it's not that they responded better. It's just that they didn't receive treatment. You know? So no treatment was no. the treatment. Yeah. <laughs> just say no to drugs. Well, well, I come across know, I was just going to say, you know, benzos alone, like we talked about the benzo trap. Um, I don't know if you guys, I mean, I, I wouldn't ask you to say this publicly if you've had any experience with it, but I have uh, had friends who have come off of uh, benzos and are currently trying to come off of benzodiazepines. Um, and it's rough. It's extremely rough. I mean, you feel crazy. Um, you get really bad, uh, you know, actual physical symptoms from it as well. Uh, and it's it's very very hard to do, and I think in the majority of cases, people just say screw this, and they go back to it um, and stay on that cycle. And that's just benzodiazepines alone. That's not to mention the, you know the other aspects of the cocktail. Benzos are probably the most difficult ones to withdraw. Anyway, yes, I would say. But there is also the other concept that, you know, people who are given antidepressants and they develop like manic episodes and they're diagnosed with bipolar disorder, that is also pretty dangerous. Like these are people who the longer, who, if they have spent a lot of years in treatment, yes, the brain changes might be irreversible, you know. Mm -hmm. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. To me? Yeah. <laughs> so, like oh, I cut you off again. I was just <laughs> going back to what Gabby said about that WHO study and um, how people in less developed nations fare better with a mental illness than people in Western nations or more developed industrialized countries. Um, I came across some material where in other countries, like if you have some kind of emotional crisis or a psychotic break or something like that, is treated in the community. People gather around, you know, you get rest, you know, they talk it out with you, find out what's going on, and eventually they recover. 
And here, especially in the United States, if you have some kind of crisis like that, event, you know, people just, you know, you know, what can we do? What pill can we take? You know, you need to go to the hospital. You know, what is the doctor going to say? They completely absolve themselves a little bit of responsibility, and, you know, to look deeper into the issue. They just want a quick fix or a magic bullet, like we said in the show description. And as much as psychiatry and big pharma is to blame for actually putting these drugs out and giving these drugs to people, I think people also need to take responsibility for their own health. I mean, it might take a lot of digging. It might be emotionally painful to get to the root of why you're experiencing certain crises. You might have to look into what's going on in your family, and everybody might need to go to counseling or do something. But that's a lot of work, and a lot of people just aren't willing to put that work in to get to the root of their issues. So I think that all of the blame can't be placed on doctors and big pharma some of the responsibility lies in the patient themselves i know after a certain amount of time if you're taking these drugs your brain gets to the point where you just really can't think straight and at that point it might be too late in some cases but especially at the beginning everything and anything should be tried first before putting somebody on medication especially here in the u.s where once you get into that system, you're in it for life. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting aspect to Robert Whitaker's work with all the um, testimonials of people who, you know, usually starting 18, 20, beginning college, had anxiety and depression and something like Tiffany was saying that would be pretty normal. You have a life change. You leave home. You leave your your structure of support and and then they get hospitalized and within a day or two they're on this drug and then they spend the rest of their life 15 mm-hmm. 20 years and it's just heartbreaking to read these testimonies these people are physically disabled they're losing hair they look like drug addicts they can't go outside they have agoraphobia i mean and all of them said I wish I wouldn't have taken that initial drug when I was in my 20s if I could have just struggled through, you know, mm-hmm. an identity crisis or whatnot. Yeah, like what would my life have been like if I had never done this? Like I've seen mm-hmm. so many patients who seems like they would have had a lot of promise. You know, they're very intelligent. Some of them are very well read. They're just very sweet, wouldn't hurt a fly. And their lives turned out this way where they... You know, just functioning day to day is a struggle, and it's really sad to see. Well, it was, um, it was interesting that you said, Tiff, about how we um, have our individual response, responsibility for our own health, and um, I completely agree in that. You know, big pharma, um, they merely capitalize on something that they understand about human psychology which is i think for most people um hard work is it's um it's not a very nice idea you know people don't necessarily like hard work the idea of doing something that they find difficult and so we tend to take the path of least resistance and um you know it's it's interesting because you know as you said um, before 
it would have been a, a perhaps a, a communal sort of gathering or you would get together with your close ones and 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 speak through whatever issues you're having um I, and i think um in our modern world um it, most people tend to deny that aspect of our existence you know that the fact that we as human beings um are not going to feel happy and pleasurable all of the time mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily a bad thing um it's part of how we grow as human beings you know it's part of how we develop and how we mature and that mm-hmm. when whenever we go through some sort of emotional struggle or go through a, a difficult lesson um it's it's publicized now that when you are going through one of these problems you you take a pill for it and that corrects your issue i think we have to change our perception of um of these very things you know rather than trying to correct it maybe there's nothing wrong in the first place maybe it's just something that um it's it's a way that we can learn you know if if that makes any sense yeah, yeah. Robert Whitaker mentioned that also, like um, people who had some kind of emotional crisis or break or something and they didn't take the medication, they actually learn something from that. They learn coping skills. And if you take that away by medicating yourself or allowing yourself to be medicated, you're missing out on a lot of lessons that you could use like the next time you go through some kind of crisis. Yes, it's it's no wonder also that this medication they induce like a you know like a prefrontal cortex uh, dysfunction. It's basically your cognitive abilities are completely atroph- atrophied, and uh, it's like having Alzheimer's, basically dementia. You know, you don't develop skills, so you don't use it. You lose it. Brain atrophy, and uh, it's you know the the path goes down from there. Yeah, Elliot, I think you made a really great point there. I mean, you know, joy is awesome. It, it is awesome. Nobody can deny that. Um, but it's just a part of existence, you know, and, uh, you know, the darkness is the other part. Uh, and to to live out of balance and to try to manufacture joy on a, uh, on a consistent basis, um, it basically robs you of the experience that you, that you have that we're, that is built into us how we learn from negative experiences, from how to cope, uh, from how to deal with um, things like that. And so, yeah, we are, uh, well, I mean, we have already um, crippled uh, multiple generations mm-hmm. uh, in their in their faculties to deal with negative experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most uh, worrying thing, yeah, go ahead. Well, in hospitals, I mean, Mostly I saw this with people who were diagnosed with major depression. They had been taking antidepressants for a while. But any little thing could send them back into the hospital. Like some people even like treated it as a break because they could take a break from their normal lives, stay in the hospital for a couple weeks. Some people would actually schedule a trip to the hospital like around Christmas or, you know, the anniversary of their mother's death or something like people will be in the hospital because a loved one died. I mean, I know that's a very tragic thing, 
But to have to go into a psychiatric hospital because you can't cope with everyday life or negative emotions, I mean, that's sad in itself, but it just it's very indicative of how people just cannot cope with everyday stressors. They just don't have the tool set to work out their own emotions. And if, I don't know, if you have to go into a hospital because you don't have that kind of community support or family support, that says a lot about how whacked our society is. Our whole society is just crazy. Yeah. And I think, you know, to be clear that we're, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're not saying that people don't have problems. There, there are many problems. Um, and there's many situations in life that are um, devastating. Um, and so it, I think it's, it's hard to talk about uh, in a general kind of setting um, because you have, you know, anything that goes against the medical establishment has been now labeled as, you know, tinfoil hat for lack of a better word, but <clears throat> you have all these, uh, these outs that people can throw at you in a conversation. Like if they bring up the idea that, uh, you know, the DSM may be, uh, you know, something that is uh, misleading the medical community as to what uh, is actually going on in the brain. Immediately it's like, what are you, a Scientologist, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't exist at all. I'm like, no, I'm not saying it doesn't exist at all. Um, I'm also not saying that you need to, you know, gain OT level five in order to deal with it. Um, but you know, the, the idea that there are ways to learn to cope, uh, with negative experiences in life, um, to deal with them on your own and to foster a, a, a network, a community around you that can help you do that like Tiff mentioned, it is, uh, is very hard work and we're kind of, we're kind of allergic to work these days. Um, and maybe not so much like the daily grind, but we are allergic to mental and emotional work. I think, um, things that feel hard or are hard to deal with. Um, we would just as soon, I say we, but you know, society in general would just as soon, um, find a, a magic bullet, um, to just fix that as opposed to having to deal with it. Um, you know, I, I hear the phrase a lot, oh, it's just too hard. Uh, this is just too hard to deal with. I can't deal with this. Um, you know, and I, I kind of want to say, yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be, you know, that's part of life. It's supposed to be hard. Um, you know, if this was all easy, if there were no failures that you had to like crawl back from, uh, you wouldn't learn anything. Yeah. Very good point. And the sad thing is, is that, I mean, you would think that some of these pharmaceutical drugs um, at some point were tested and had some level of efficacy. You know, there was proof that they actually worked on, you know, at some point. But from reading uh, the material for this week's show, um, I came to realize that... (laughs) Well, I was really quite flabbergasted at the fact that (laughs) most of these drugs, um, the the sort of foundational studies which supposedly supported the the fact that they worked, um, were fundamentally flawed. 
you know, um, mm-hmm. there, there wasn't really any evidence to support that they worked. And there was actually evidence to say that they made the problem worse, you know, yeah. and it's insane that they were ever accepted um, because th- it's been clearly shown a number of times that many of th- these different drugs actually increase the number of symptoms that these people had. Um, and that that information was subsequently suppressed. Um, and the I mean, the situation it's led to now is that people, um, you could say by their own doing or by their ignorance, um, and the fact that Big Pharma wanted to make lots of money from it, um, you've gotten to a state now where people have been debilitated um, because they took these pills. Um, and it's, it, that just amazed me, you know, um, just to see that uh, it's kind of depressing. It is really bad, bad. <laughs> it is really pretty bad. I think the best example, or not the best example, the most tragic example is uh, children, you know, mm-hmm. because basically Big Pharma came in and said, okay, the adult market is saturated. We need more clients. And they basically, like, yes, went and targeted the children. Yeah, if you're a child and you can't sit through, what, seven or eight hours of boring school lessons without tapping your feet or wanting to get up and run around, then there's something wrong with you. You're not just displaying the exuberance of youth. Kids should be outside playing most of the time. If you can't do any of those things... You know, if you can't sit there and listen at a desk, sit there all day long, then you're defective. You need to be medicated. And most of it's by the teacher's Mm. requests, Mm -hmm. not even necessarily the parents, but the teachers and school administration wanting to, you know, when you have 25 kids and one is disruptive, you know, oh, that kid needs medication. Yeah, and sometimes if you ask the parent, you know, they say, Oh, Johnny's fine at home. You know, he doesn't have these problems paying attention or doing anything. You know, I mean, he still functions okay at home, but he just can't deal with school. (laughs) It looks like we have somebody that's trying to call in. Whoever this caller is, you do not have a microphone hooked up or it's not hooked up properly. So we can't get you on the line, whoever this person is. So try again if you want to talk with us. As a side note, um, sorry, John, go ahead. No, 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 no. go ahead, please. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, um, just slightly off track a little bit, um, I found it very interesting to learn how um, this actually came about um, in that the way that these pharmaceutical companies originally sort of gained um, public acceptance for their drugs um, was by co-opting or (laughs) I'm sure they probably didn't have to co-opt, but um, essentially hiring prominent psychiatrists in the field. Um, And this was a lot of psychiatrists as well. But I can't remember exactly which drug it was for, but there was one drug that they were trying to pass. Um, and the FDA actually said that the statements that were coming from the pharmaceutical companies were not correct and should not be listened to. So in this case, the FDA weren't actually so bad 
But, um, but what they did was they essentially hired a load of psychiatrists and in newspapers and magazines and stuff, they had, um, you know, these psychiatrists say things like, oh, Prozac is the number one pill with the least side effects and it works the best. Um, you know, yeah. I, I would take it myself. And it was just essentially a marketing campaign. And so the public gradually, you know, um, as people generally do, we tend to see doctors and people in white coats with some level of authority, you know, and so we take what they say and we trust it. And so you had a load of these doctors or psychiatrists who are basically saying this thing and gradually, you know, slowly but slowly, the public started to get on side. And, um, and I just thought, I mean, how spineless of these these people who are hired, these doctors who are supposedly, I mean, they come into the profession supposedly um, to care for, for people and to, you know, like the first set in medicine is do no harm. And what they're doing is they're looking at studies and they're completely twisting the evidence um, and painting them like they, you know, they're, they're this really great thing. When in reality, what the studies actually showed was that, I mean, we've already spoke about this, but it made the patients worse. So it says a lot of, yeah. a lot about these doctors, you know, either, you know, they, they really don't care about people or, you know, the, 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 the money and, um, the benefits that they would get from these pharmaceutical companies that just completely clouded their vision in this instance. I don't know, probably a mixture of the two, but you know, it just shows how we can't always trust what doctors say. You know, many of them have all no, ulterior motives. Yeah. No, the media. <laughs> yeah. Basically, for example, depression, which has a natural outcome. You know, some people have really bad depression, but the natural outcome is that, you know, you'll grow over it. Six months, one year, you'll learn something about it, and it just, you know, you get on with your life. And that is pretty hard to beat on any study with any drug. Because if 80, if more than 85% of people, you know, get cured from depression just with time alone, then what is any drug going to do with that outcome? And, um, yes, and that's basically what they did. They took, they did studies and maybe on the first six weeks for severe depression, there was a slight improvement, but, um, long term, it, uh, the medication itself, it had a depressogenic effect. It took, depression took a malignant form. And now you will not get cured like in six months or one year naturally. Now you will be depressed for life, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a compounding effect, Elliot. Like you said, it's maybe a mixture of, of those different factors. And uh, I think that's evident throughout the entire modern culture slash society uh, and, and all the conditions that we have. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's patients and doctors and diet and media all kind of combining in this awful, uh, soup, um, to make people, um, less able to deal with daily life and more susceptible to propaganda, um, to black and white, you know, off the cuff thinking. Um, so just like how you might get prescribed opiates if you have a sore back i mean trust me i know back pain can be really bad but my point being you know they're prescribing 
drugs that are not necessary for certain conditions in the same way that they're prescribing psychiatric drugs for things that are a natural part of life um, that should be dealt with in a certain way. Now, again, just to be clear, I'm not saying that severe psychiatric illnesses do not exist. They do. Uh, you know, uh, schizophrenia, for one, can be extremely bad. And I don't know, you know, if that needs to be treated in a certain way, but that is you know hallucinogenic schizophrenia is different than like low-level depression so mm-hmm. these things are there is like a scale you know it's not just one thing or the other um but we can say at the very least uh that the uh the medical community is being wildly irresponsible about how many drugs they're prescribing to people and they're making the situation a hell of a lot worse well, especially when it comes to, to go ki- kids, you know, the, yeah. the ADHD medication, one of the main side effects is hallucinations and even uh, with the depressants in kids, suicidality and all these things, you know, a kid can't sit still. Now all of a sudden he's hallucinating and, you know, having physical symptoms, debilitating symptoms, and then the whole social withdrawal and basically numbing, like Gabby said, the prefrontal cortex. Now they can't interact with other children. Mm-hmm. You know, they're lethargic, they're dazed, they're confused. And the parents again and again say, Johnny isn't Johnny anymore. Yeah, and that, I always mm-hmm. question, like, what do they mean when they say these drugs are effective or that they work? Um, I think that what they consider working as the person becomes so sedated that maybe they wouldn't be outwardly psychotic and doing strange things or saying strange things. But, you know, I've talked to these people, these patients, and if you spend enough time talking with them and trying to figure out what it is they're thinking about or what they believe, I mean, it's still there. They still have strange beliefs and strange thoughts and, you know, delusions and so forth. I mean, they're just a little bit muted. So if that's what they mean by the drugs working, then I guess they do work in that way if you want to, you know, completely sedate someone and knock them out. But the drugs, you know, you know, a lot of these patients with schizophrenia, they sleep like constantly. They'll wake up at like noon. They'll take naps during the day. They just complain about being so tired. And that's a lot of the reason why people don't take their medications regularly because it just makes them feel awful. But then again, with the people who, you know, take their medications faithfully, it doesn't stop them from having a psychotic break. It doesn't stop them from going into the hospital again. So this whole thing about the drugs working, even if you do look at it just from the, um, from the point of view that they aren't spontaneous and their psychoses, like they keep it to themselves versus acting out. I mean, the drugs don't really work if you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, we have a question in the chat. Me. I wonder, oh, yeah. uh, one of our chatters yeah, asked let's go, if we... Let's go with the question. Yeah, yeah, do we have time to go into whether the mainstream understanding of the role of serotonin is correct? Now, Elliot, you had mentioned that earlier. Um, I... I to be honest, I personally don't have any any uh, data to contribute on that. But are, um, are you guys, you know, with any experience in the in the medical fields, aware of whether or not serotonin is perceived correctly its role? I would say no, just because people and the medical profession's perception of how the body works in general is quite subpar. 
the body and the brain, how, how they work, is so complex. I don't even know if we can even say with any degree of certainty that we know what's going on. Like the body knows much more about itself than any doctor could ever find out. That's just my opinion. But no, I don't think that it's correct. I mean, saying that it's a chemical imbalance is, you know, oversimplification. Like, a lot. (laughs) Way oversimplified. There's no way that they can know how all these uh, factors, neurotransmitters and receptors, all of them, how they all interact and be able to pinpoint, okay, this is the one thing that we need to tweak. And then they can't really say how that little bit of tweaking affects the rest of the function in the brain. So I don't think it's correct at all. There are even studies when they have, where they have studied the brain's liquid, the, um, uh, the, well, the CFR liquid. That one, yes. <laughs> they actually, in some people that were depressed, they had they they had high levels of serotonin. So there yes. goes your theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think a lot of the studies on serotonin that it shows very conflicting results. Um, there's really no accepted um, sort of body of evidence that that shows that there is any imbalance or any deficiency in serotonin. Um, serotonin, I think, of what we understand of it <laughs> is not a lot, <laughs> basically. Um, and to say that, it, that a state of depression um, is caused by one neurotransmitter is so reductionistic and completely absurd that <laughs> I don't know... How it gained traction in the first place, you know. The f- depression is is multifactorial. It can be caused by many different things. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's been lots of links with gut health, and also circadian rhythms, and I mean all sorts of different factors play into what is depression. And the idea, I mean, even the diagnosis of depression is somewhat subjective in and of itself. But I mean, th- this is the problem with modern medicine and especially psychiatry is, you know, um, y- you cannot reduce the body to, uh, to its, its small compartments. And this is what they've tried to do with the serotonin myth or the serotonin hypotheses is to say that, you know, there is this one chemical in the body. And if you haven't got a lot of it, then it means that you're going to feel a certain way. And, you know, that it's completely flawed in and of itself. And mm-hmm. I, I would say that depression you know, um, it's probably way more complex than anyone actually understands right now. And to claim that anyone really understands what it is um, would probably um, not be entirely true. Mm -hmm. I wanted to illustrate the damaging effects of these antidepressants in children because when they're given like SSRIs, like they have the serotonin uh, theory, backing it up supposedly they develop like hostility and mania you know and 80 percent of juvenile bipolar disorder disorder children uh 80 percent of these 84 percent of these children were previously tra- uh, taken psychiatric drugs which just goes to show how these um bpd juvenile bpd is just a completely modern disease you know it didn't exist before 
it was like, you know, totally unheard of. It's something that just, it is from this century when psychiatric drugs were developed, you know. And Elliot, you mentioned earlier spinelessness on the part of the medical community, and I think that comes into play with treating Mm -hmm. children, you know, because children are a de facto patient. Uh, An adult uh, may come into a doctor and say, okay, well, maybe I'll try this or maybe I'll try something else. You know, they are not necessarily sold per se. But when a doctor tells a parent you have to give this to your child, uh, most parents are just going to say, okay, whatever it takes, do it. You know, I'm I'm taking your word for it because it's my kid. Um, And marketing drugs uh, to children as, well, their parents as clients, essentially, but for the children, uh, it really is... uh, is spineless is a despicable uh, tactic and they've made billions of dollars off of this and, and are in the process of creating a generation of people who can't think straight, sit still, concentrate anything without a pill. It drives me crazy. I remember the first child I I ever met in antipsychotics. I didn't knew the concept existed. Maybe because I, you know, I had experience from, you know, Costa Rica, third world countries. I don't know. But now that I'm in Spain, which is the number one consumer of psychiatric drugs, and then for, and then the second one, I think it's the United States. You know, I first I met the first child. It came to the emergency room with a psychotic breakdown, and there was these instructions in his medical history saying that if he does these, give like ten drops of these, which is an antipsychotic. And I was just like shocked. It's like what? How am I gonna give an antipsychotic to a little child? I. I couldn't do it. I sent him to the hospital to talk to a psychologist, a psychiatrist. I just couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And it's just patently absurd that you would treat the child alone and not look at the family system. Like, what is going on in that family? A child is just playing out the dysfunction in the family. And to give a child a drug just makes him the scapegoat of all of the dysfunction that's in that family. It's really despicable and it's sick. Yeah, and have well, they got any physiological at, issues as well? I mean, mm-hmm. what's their diet like? What's yeah. their lifestyle yeah. like? And the in the school exactly. environment too. I mean, you know, we mentioned school earlier. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I haven't. I, I went to a, a private school. It wasn't like a suit and tie boarding school or anything like that, but it was a small uh, Christian school. So we had a slightly uh, different. Um, my my limited awareness of public schools and what they're like, and especially the ones in larger metro areas where you have you know a thousand plus kids in a class, um, it's it's an awful environment for for a child uh, to go through. And I, I won't go off on a tangent about the modern schooling system. I mean, I think it's complete BS. But uh, the the idea that that would drive kids crazy is not unreasonable mm-hmm. uh, to me. You know, and so and then you combine that with their consumption of, uh, of media, um, lack of meaningful play, uh, lack of meaningful social interaction, uh, lack of, uh, you know, any actual real world, uh, learning experience. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's all working together, uh, to make people crazy, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, I think saying it's anyone, Elliot said it's, it's reductionist, you know, um, a child may grow up to struggle with, what they call ADD or ADHD and then kind of transition into depression, you know, or they may, you know, in their teens, 
say like, oh, now I'm depressed, you know, like, well, every teenager is depressed. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's the teenage, that's what happens, you know. Um, Maybe you should be depressed if you can see the state of the world. So all these drugs are yeah. buffering, you know, mm-hmm. all, the, yeah. all the root causes, you know. It's like uh, the chatter just posted in the, for- uh, in the, well, in the chat here. It's such a constant battle against all these drugs or genetic, uh, or genetic modified organisms, toxins, pollutants, radiation, you know. I wonder if one would ever truly be able to be healthy or it's just a matter of reducing damage. But first of all, you know, you have to be aware that these problems exist. There is a problem, you know, a big elephant in the the room. What is that, that person that said that's no sign of mental health to be adjusted to a sick society? Krishnamurti. Oh, J.D. Krishnamurti. Yeah. That's a good one. Well, and that's what I think it is. It's a it's a sickness of society um, mm-hmm. that is uh, that is growing uh, ever more exponentially now. Um, you know, and who knows? I mean, if we can, as as a population, um, you know, I hate to be the downer, uh, but it, it, that that occurs to me. You know, is this even fixable? Perhaps on a small scale, on a person to person basis. Um, you, you know, you can help, uh, help your own children. Uh, you can help your friends, uh, to create meaningful experiences in life, to learn how to cope with negative experiences, um, and how to generate, uh, and take advantage of positive experiences. Um, but the idea that, uh, that there is a program or a method of some kind that could fix the whole picture, I'm, I'm pessimistic no. about that. This I would love it. It's but, too broken. You know, yeah. No one's going to admit, oh, we were wrong. Like, all these medications are useless. Let's just start from the beginning. That will never, ever, ever happen. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the, the, gov- so. the government is looking into it, right? This rise of epidemic mental illness, and especially in kids. And in 2008, the GAO, which is the government accounting office, wanted to investigate what was going on. And they found that one in every 15 young adults, so that's 18 to 26 years of old, is now um, seriously mentally ill. And that there are over wow. 680,000 in that age group with bipolar disorder. Hmm. And then another with 800,000 illnesses of major depression. So uh, the the GAO noted that this was, in fact, an undercount of the problem, as it didn't include all the young adults who were homeless, incarcerated, or institutionalized. Mm. So all of these youth are fundamentally and functionally impaired to some degree or another. And that was the government accounting office stated that. So that's where we stand as a nation today. Mm. Well, it's just on the rise. It's on the rise. I mean, like um, Robert Whittaker talks about how you can measure this, and he says that the way that they measure um, mental illness is uh, by something called patient care episodes. So it's basically that's how they measure the the amount of people or the people who are treated for psychiatric illness. So in 1955, um, there were 1,028 people per 100,000 so one, uh, roughly 1,000 people 
1,000 per 100,000 um, had a mental illness or were diagnosed with um, a mental illness. Um, whereas in 2000, that totaled um, 3,806 3, people per 100,000. So that's nearly like a fourfold increase. Hmm. Um, that's a lot. I mean, in 2000, in total, it was... 10.7 million people um, and it kind of seems like when you look at these statistics it kind of seems like this whole um, uh, pharmaceutical magic pill industry has essentially been creating these mental illnesses you know or inducing them via inducing the chemical imbalance by taking these these drugs and it's like um uh, yeah, it's it's just yeah. sad. I mean, do you, it, what do you guys think that uh, that it's an actual in, in problems or an increase in the propensity to diagnose? I think there I mean, are several maybe, factors. Yeah, there are several factors, but the drug industry today is like um, acting as the biggest buffer. You know, to, you know, it, it is buffering the real problems that we have. And it's really like the perfect example how, yes, people prefer both doctors and patients. They prefer the magic bullet and not to go through all the work of going through your issues, diet or uh, pro uh, the problems in society. And, uh, but the drug itself, it really worsens everything, you know, as, we just reviewed it just worsens outcomes you know there is hardcore evidence for that you have to take into account the drug advertisements too on television like do you have this symptom or that symptom you might have general and anxiety disorder ask your doctor if wellbutrin is right for you i mean it it kind of takes away a lot of the stigma. I guess there used to be kind of a stigma, like I'm not going to shrink, no head shrinker. I don't trust doctors. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I don't like taking pills. But a lot of that has fallen away, and people are a lot more likely to go into their doctor's office and ask for something when before they probably wouldn't have. But uh, the the advertisements kind of you know give kind of a social proof. To the fact that, Social you know, proof. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people have, you know, crises or trouble coping. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And look, we have a pill that can fix it for you. Yeah, most often it is misleading because they can say depression, it's very dangerous. Mm. Well, not necessarily. Depression has a very good outcome if you deal mm -hmm. with it, you know, on your own. <laughs> if you take a drug, yes, you might end up suicidal. And the same with bipolar disorder. Like, if you take drugs, you can really take a malignant form. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you choose, like, psychotherapy support, you know, it might be very hard to heal it but you will have a better outcome. You know, it can take you years, but still you will have a better outcome, you know. And you've There's got so many of those adverts on TV because um, because Big Pharma has so much money to, um, to pay for them now. I mean, if you look at, I mean, in 1986, the revenue from um, antidepressants and antipsychotics was roughly $500 million. Um, when, when you compare that to 20 years later in 2003, and four um it was nearly 20 billion 
But that's a 40-fold increase in revenue, in profit. And then in 2010, <laughs> it went up to $40 billion. Mm. So now, seven years later, I wonder what the stats are now. Mm. Wow. Boy. <clears throat> yeah, I wonder, uh, something occurs to me, too, that there's a uh, dichotomy of the quote-unquote progress of our society compared to the amount are actually more conditions or if there's more diagnoses of things that just normal people deal with on a day-to-day basis. But my point being, you could ostensibly argue that uh, we are largely now more like sensitive and aware of people's, you know, feelings and situations than we used to be, mm. I guess. Like you could make that argument in the sense that like, if you were a homosexual in the sixties, uh, you had a lot more chance of being persecuted than you do now. Um, you know, or even if you were just kind of like the artsy weird kid, you know, or you were like emotional, um, if you go back 30, 40 years, uh, you were more likely to be persecuted, made fun of, even punished. Um, and now there is more, generally, more sensitivity towards people's feelings and state of mind. And yet we see this, like, total opposite trend of uh, of the amount of, uh, you know, um, mental conditions that are being, uh, first of all, you know, thought up uh, as conditions like oppositional defiant disorder, which makes me really angry. <laughs> I guess you mean I have teenage rebellion. You know, versus the, uh, the amount of, uh, of, you know, for lack of a better term, tender, loving care that's, that's floating around. Uh, I, I wonder what gives, you know, um, you know, it seems like if we're being more, more sensitive on the whole, that uh, people should be more, uh, well adjusted. However, that is not happening for sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a black and white argument, but it just makes me curious that like, where's the, uh, where's the disparity there? I think that in a way we're more sensitive, but it comes across as a more of a politically correct, uh, acceptance versus really getting to know somebody and where they're coming from. I uh-huh. think it's more of like, you know, you shouldn't judge people versus, you know, I know this person. I know what he's going through. I talked to this person. I know him. I'm not going to judge him because I love him versus, you know, you shouldn't say that because it's wrong. If that made sense. It does make sense. I guess I would say there's there's not very much actual, like, getting to know people on a very deep level mm-hmm. um i think a lot of that has to do exactly. with like social media but there are many many centers you know with, which don't teach people how to cope with you know your emotions and there are very few centers which actually does um do teach people how to become adults how to cope with stress how to face their lives and their emotions and those very few centers do they do have very good results and they use, um, they sometimes use psychiatric drugs, but minimal doses, just like enough. And, uh, for example, you know, to put a couple of examples, there is the um, research from Finland 
there was a region in Finland who, which had a very high rate of schizophrenia. And, um, you know, the, the team, the researchers there, they opted for like a group family therapy setting, you know, where decisions and treatment were made jointly. Uh, psychotherapists will, you know, focus on teaching schizophrenic, uh, schizophrenics, uh, meaningful stories about, uh, why, why they're sick, you know, and to help them, you know, uh, become adults and to cope with their emotions, you know. And the majority of patients were discharged and without symptoms after five years, you know. Mm-hmm. Social social interaction, meaningful connections, that actually works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm being yeah. honest. <laughs> Yeah. There's also the research from the Seneca Center. I think this is in the United States. And basically their policy was the same. Actually, their policy was to take all the children they received off drugs and uh, they will have withdrawal symptoms for one month or two, but they will support them all throughout that process. And each child was assigned a mentor, you know, and each child will blossom after they get attached to this mentor. And uh, they were encouraged to think, to be creative, and you know, the child felt, the children felt like they were children again, <laughs> and they began to see themselves in a new way, and um, they were more autonomic. They, you know, they took better decisions for themselves and their lives, and uh, they developed emotional bonds between them. You know, it was, you know, basically most of them were discharged as well without drugs and with very good outcomes. And they were, that center is actually in San Leandro, California, and they were like the most severe of severe. They had been turned away from all these other places, and a lot of them were foster children, so you can imagine just the emotional trauma of of being in different foster care homes and whatnot. And, I mean, they've had tremendous success there. I think it was started in 1985, but that's one place I think they have, what, 2,000 kids at a time or something? I mean, that's an anomaly, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, I was wondering if you guys want to go to this uh, other clip that we had from the, the Stefan uh, Molyneux interview with Robert Whitaker. Um, do we have that second one available, the story of psychiatry? Yeah, we have it. Yeah, so and let's just explain this to your readers. So one of the things, so up in the 1970s, um, you know, psychiatry had its Freudians, it had its, some engagement in uh, talk therapy, etc. But in terms of their, a couple things were happening. One, there was a lot of anti-psychiatry movement during the 70s, which was sort of treating psychiatry as sort of an agent of social control. So that made them a bit unpopular. Um, there were some, pres- you know, sort of presentations of psychiatry in the media, sort of the crazy shrinks as well. But more important was this. There was a big boom in the, in sort of the therapy marketplace. Psychologists began offer, there were a lot more psychologists offering therapy. There were social workers. So now all of a sudden psychiatry, those giving talk therapy or doing psychoanalytic therapy, found themselves in competition with psychologists, social workers, right? Um, so just in terms of the marketplace, they're now competing with people that can undercut their price, so to speak. So they say to themselves, what can we do to give ourselves a, an advantage in the marketplace? And, they, and it's quite obvious. They have prescribing powers. These other groups do not. 
So to give themselves an advantage in the, in, the, in the marketplace, they have to make sure their prescribing powers have a value. Now, the other thing you referred to is, the other thing was in the 1970s, is psychiatry was seen as not a real medical, they weren't real doctors, so to speak, right? And, and their therapies weren't seen as very effective. And, and so medical residents weren't choosing to go into psychiatry either. So you hear this stuff in the 70s among psychiatrists saying, we're, you know, we're in a fight for our survival. Uh, you know, psychiatry's in a crisis. And the way they resolved those dual crises, which was that some residents didn't want to become psychiatrists and also the marketplace competition, is they came up with DSM-3, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 3, in which they declared to the world, mental disorders are brain disorders, just like heart disease or cancer, etc., and then they began um, setting up a PR arm, the American Psychiatric Association, to start telling this story. And part of that PR machinery was to tell about how great the drugs were and how they fixed chemical imbalances and how they were making this, um, these great advances. And that PR story now gets funded in part by the pharmaceutical companies because uh, you can see the joints, the, the storytelling interests now are completely aligned. And, and we can go from there. But, yeah, what happened was in 1980... The American Psychiatric Association said, we will tell a story of brain diseases. We will tell a story of our drugs that are very effective. And uh, even though our research may be saying something else, and anybody who does not get on board within the profession will face basically um, some ostracization. They'll sort of be treated like lepers. It won't be a way to get ahead. And then the final part of the storytelling was pharmaceutical companies in the 80s began hiring American um academics, in other words, psychiatrists at academic medical schools to be their speakers, advisors, consultants. And once that happened, once that joining happened, and once academic psychiatry began serving as speakers for the pharmaceutical industry, we began to get this extraordinarily distorted story. And those speakers, and we place our trust in academic psychiatry to be, you know, the honest um, storytellers, but in, instead they were sort of you know, they were telling a story to benefit the uh, growth of a pharmaceutical market. Yeah, so don't believe the story, folks. Don't believe it's all just the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. If you don't believe us, read the book. <laughs> the book is very depressing. <clears throat> yeah, for, yeah. It is. As are most good books, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for anybody who who may have joined us late or is curious, the referencing is Anatomy of an Epidemic uh, by Robert Whitaker. Um, and you can get that on Amazon or uh, pretty much anywhere. I think uh, there is also an audiobook on uh, Audible uh, for those who might have that inclination. But he yeah, also definitely. gives lots of lectures because... As he shares in his book, he did not start out his research as somebody who doubted the whole psychiatry industry or the the drug theories. He was a believer. And then as he started to do research, he really found all the information was disturbing and that it wasn't the case. And he's gotten a lot of uh, backlash for his work, but as he said in the first clip, you know, nobody's, a, people are haters, but they don't ever come with the science 
to prove that I'm wrong, which says a lot. Well, uh, I don't know what you guys think uh, it might be a good time to go to the pet health segment. Uh, we're coming up on our time for the show, and we've got a long one today uh, about antidepressants for pets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or how various emotional maladjustments in our companions could be a symptom of them living in a distorted and sick environment. Um, so it's it's very interesting. Uh, let's uh, let's let's check that out, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up when we come back. Hello. And welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and this week's topic is antidepressants for pets, and how, just like in case of humans, various maladjustments in pets are a symptom of our companions living in a distorted and sick environment, and how it is our responsibility, and yet many choose an easy way out that in the long run damages their pet health even more. Sure, not all of them do it on purpose. Unfortunately, we are surrounded by false information and many don't have the time or inclination to invest energy in order to separate the wheat from the chaff or to create for the pets a more optimal environment. While trying to find uh, pertinent information for this segment, I stumbled upon two recordings. First one is a short news report from uh, 2013 when antidepressants for pets were becoming a new hot thing. Another one is also from the beginning of 2013, and it is a talk by a person whose name I don't know, but he has a YouTube channel named Eclectic Vibrations. And in this recording, he expresses his opinion on the topic of antidepressants for pets, which I found very relevant. He does use a more colorful language a couple of times toward the end, so I apologize for that in advance but hopefully it won't take away from the overall message, which is that we are all interconnected on this planet and that Krishnamurti is saying that it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sickened society applies to our pets as well. Something to think about. Here are the two recordings. So this is little Joey, who is absolutely adorable, and this is Joey's dad, and they're a part of our story here tonight. But I want you to really take notice, because this dog is so calm, as calm as can be. But not every pet is, and as a result, some pet owners feel that they have to give their dogs either Xanax or Prozac. But is it really the right thing to do? Dogs are known for being full of life, barking, running, and playing. But when you have a pet that is overactive, uncontrollable, or exhibiting anxiety, should you turn to doggy drugs? I think it all depends on the situation. I think that uh, some dogs need need help. The vet makes you think like it might help with different aggressions or odd behaviors. I just think that's so not healthy. They're so smart to learn if you teach them what to do, but I don't believe in drugs. Well, pet expert and trainer Andrea Arden says she has seen a dramatic increase in the last 10 years of owners getting prescriptions for Prozac and Xanax from their vets to calm their pets down. She believes the reason for anxious pets is a change in the owner's lifestyle. 
I think one is that animals are expected to live more constrained lives. Um, I think people are busier and busier, especially with the economic downfall. They're working more, and so they have less time for their pets. And I think as a result, we're seeing more behavior problems with animals. Arden does not believe that drugs are the solution. I think it's really mostly owners looking for a quick fix. I think what people need to think about is that they need to find a way to spend more time with their animals, more quality time with their animals, and they really need to focus on enriching their lives so that they have fewer behavior problems. And Arden says you have to be careful because Prozac and Xanax could actually harm your pet. It may make them overly anxious. It may make their appetite increase, which could cause stress. It could cause them to gain weight. Um, it could cause an increase in urination, defecation. Those are all things that you want to talk to your veterinarian about. So before you resort to drugs, Arden suggests getting your dog trained and giving it some good old-fashioned puppy love. Linda Schmidt, Fox 5 News. Howdy there, folks. I was watching a Robin Williams stand-up and he mentioned in passing cats on Prozac. So I went to DuckDuckGo.com, a very superior search engine, and typed that in, cats on Prozac. And a result um, aimed at me because I'm in Ireland. I got a result from pets.ie, the blog post which is linked in the description. Now, I'll read the blog post for you, and then I'll offer my critique, which, you know, isn't just some opinion. But here we go. Does your dog bark, sleep, chase their tail? Well, according to a new study, your pet may be one in eight of ten dogs that require Prozac medication. According to a new study carried out by Claire Corridan, The Sun reported, analysis and results of the study was based on 1,300 dogs and their owners over a two-week period. Dr. Corridan of the Champion Animal Beauty Behavior Therapy Study Group said, well, 80% of dogs have one or more behavioral problems. Natural responses such as barking, sleeping for long periods, and chasing their tail excessively are now defined as hyperactivity, phobic behavior, and separation anxiety. Vets believe more than 80% of the 8 million dogs in Britain are suffering from anorexia, depression, sleeping problems, and even self-mutilation. The new doggy drugs, which are already available in America, are expected to be on sale before the end of the year in Britain, and the end of the year being 2012. Critics say it's a lazy excuse for bad ownership. Beverly Cuddy, editor of Dogs Today, said, Many people are becoming a bit more perfectionist and want their dogs free of all negatives. But this means you are not tolerating normal doggy behavior. There are lots of things you would prefer your dog not to do, but that is a part of having a pet. Now, I like the sarcastic tone of this article, and I like how they trust the reader to know that it's absolutely crazy. I'd go one further than Beverly Cuddy in saying that 
we expect our dogs to be perfect by saying that we're far from perfect ourselves. There is a there is a mental attitude in the air to some extent or another we all embody many dysfunctions as psychiatry would call them most animal owners are forgetting what it means to own an animal they if they aren't beating the animal and we honestly don't know how much that goes on if they aren't beating the animal then they're neglecting the animal and keeping them in a confined space for hours a day days on end for the entirety of the animal's life even outside of our household cats and dogs and other pets are frowned upon really not not only frowned upon but outlawed um you, you have to keep your dogs on a leash you have to make sure that you know where they are at all times basically your cat or your dog is a child forever under your watchful eye he is or she is a slave there was a time when it was just trusted to let cats and dogs and other pets and even horses to just wander this is their world too and they know it they know that this is their world but they're stuck they're stuck in houses they're stuck in backyards they're stuck in the immediate territory around their homes they're stuck on a leash and walked around the block now it would be a mistake to then try to remedy that natural depression that results with things like Prozac which are basically condensed condensed tablets of fluoride basically something uh, that that passes your brain blood barrier numbs your brain it makes you stupid that's why it makes you more tolerable to be around and for many many years great revolutionary psychologists and mystics have told us that this is the result of the society of the family that we can be pulled into emotional chaos we can be emotionally stunted by society and the family if anything it's a sign of health 
and and that's a that's a big subject that I I, I implore you to study. Uh, you know, look into people like Krishnamurti and R.D. Lang, Thomas Saz. I'll supply appropriate links in the description of the video. To go on and take drugs for something that's completely natural, which is to have a maladaption to a world gone crazy, it's going to end up bad. If you apply a solution to a problem that isn't the most direct solution, it shouldn't be any big surprise that you run into complication. And the direct solution would be to find more freedom in your daily life. Find more freedom in your attitudinal life. Just break away from the group thing. Get into the countryside and experience a world that isn't artificially lit and paved and isn't full of people who share the same melodramas as we do, but, you know, just a different description, just a different story. If we, if we don't get out of that environment and into the beautiful world as it was intended to be, the mountains, the forests, the country roads, then of course we're going to go do lally. And up until a while ago, relatively speaking, animals had that freedom to wander, or even once a week maybe bring a dog to a forest let them experience that energy that does heal and replenish our spirits. I find it very disgusting and appalling that today we have our animals on drugs. I thought it was bad enough that, you know, we, we put the most sensitive people in our world on drugs because we don't like their behavior. This is really appalling to me, because maybe there's a possibility that, I don't know, maybe someone who is put on these drugs could stand up and say, no, I won't do that. It has happened. I know people who have turned around and said, no, I will not take those drugs. And through a lengthy process on their own, they found themselves. Some people I know are still going through that process, but I trust that they will, because they're strong people. They're the ones who decided. No, I won't do it that way. I'll do it my way. Now, dogs can't do that. Cats can't do that. Horses can't do that. Imagine a world where we give antidepressants to fucking horses. If you saw how horses were kept in 
limited environments, in small sheds. I, I think you'd see that coming down the road too. Can we not get a little historical perspective here? And maybe even as an example, look at the noble wolf or the fox, these beautiful creatures, very, very independent, despite despite propaganda to the contrary that, you know, all of these dog-like animals, canines, are pack animals that will do almost anything for their owner, which they will. That's why they lived with us in our houses, in our unnatural environment. They put away all of those instincts, those many hard-coded instincts that they used to require every day to find food, protect themselves, find their way home. Even morals. Dogs. Fox. Wolves. Practice morals. They have them. They put away all of those things to live with us. And over the years, we allowed for them to have less and less of those powers. If you couldn't socialize, if you couldn't work, if you couldn't take a walk, climb a mountain, ever, and if ever, under strict supervision, wouldn't you go terribly depressed too? I certainly hope you would, because you won't be good health, health-wise, physical health-wise. Your emotions are an alarm clock to what is actually going on in your body, how your body is faring. So for God's sake, maybe I can accept that you want to dull your emotions so that you then don't have to listen to your body intelligence, but for God's sakes, don't do it to the fucking animals. All right, thank you, Zoya. That was a fascinating clip, and I think you know made some good points about uh, anthropomorphizing animals, essentially. Yeah, and if we think it's so absurd to give our pets psych medications, why don't we think the same about ourselves? Why can't we just be in our <clears throat> natural human state and learn to deal with our emotions in a natural way, like our animals do? <clears throat> Well, uh, for today, uh, <clears throat> I have a recipe, and uh, in lieu of the topic of uh, mental health and issues of the head, uh, the recipe for today is head cheese. 
This is appropriate on a number of levels. <clears throat> so this is a unique recipe, and I don't know if anybody will actually make it, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so uh, head cheese is essentially a meatloaf made of the cooked down parts of a pig's head. Mm. Uh, as gross uh, as that might sound. <laughs> Ingredients are one meaty pork skull, uh, cheeks, tongue, and jowls removed from the skull. Uh, everything else you want the brain. The brain is important. Uh, two, bay, two bay leaves, one tablespoon peppercorns, one tablespoon of salt, two tablespoons of gelatin powder, one teaspoon of ground nutmeg, one teaspoon of dried parsley, uh, and one half teaspoon of white pepper. Now you can add spices to your taste. If you are tolerant of nightshades, you can add uh, cayenne uh, and another optional ingredient is uh, ground mustard. If you wanted to add that as well to add some spice. Um, <clears throat> so place the butchered pork skull, not including the removed parts. Uh, so you want to remove the tongue, cheeks and jowls uh, into a stock pot. Uh, you might need a very large stock pot for this, depending on the size of the pig. Uh, so reading the recipe here, it says, I know it may be creepy, but the brain is incredibly high source of DHA as well as selenium. Uh, so be sure to leave the brain. Um, add enough water to fill the pot, saving a few inches at the top so that it doesn't boil over. Add the bay leaves, peppercorns, and salt, and then cover the pot if you can. Bring the water to boil on a high heat. Allow it to boil for several hours until the remaining meat comes loose from the bones and the skull is completely clean. This may this is long. It may actually take four to five hours. So this is a, a process. Um, <clears throat> you remove and discard the skull and mandible, which should have disconnected from the softening of the bones, um, and any remaining bones, uh, and set those aside. Uh, remove the bay leaves. Grind or chop the strained meat in a food processor or a meat grinder to a large ground meat consistency. Place it into a large mixing bowl. Um, so some people say to use larger chunks of meat. Uh, other people say finer. Depends on your taste. Um, I would say, you know, grind it up pretty pretty fine. Um, so you have the liquid set aside from the strained mixture. <clears throat> In a large bowl, mix two cups of the cooking liquid with the ground meat and the gelatin. When it's thoroughly combined, add the nutmeg, the parsley, uh, and the white pepper, and then mix it up again. So you mix everything together. Line a loaf pan with parchment or wax paper and transfer the head cheese to the loaf pan. Refrigerate for four hours or until it is firm. And then to serve, remove the head cheese from the loaf pan, slice it up. Um, you can serve it on slices of uh, cucumber or with fresh herbs uh, or alongside morning eggs. Um, so, And then you can also creep people out when they come over and you tell them what you're eating. Brains! <laughs> it's good for my brain! <laughs> and notice that there is no cheese involved whatsoever. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> head cheese uh, is not cheese. So that's head cheese. I know every, not everybody has access to a pork skull, um, but if you do have a, a butcher or a farmer that you can uh, that you can access, or you have pigs of your own, uh, it's uh, you know it's one way that you can use all the extra parts of a pig without uh, wasting things, and you can even um, set aside the uh, the the liquid you know from 
from the boiling, strain it even further and use that as broth because you've essentially also made bone broth in the process. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> brain, brain broth. Brain broth. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks for so, that, John. Yeah, yes. totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I can't wait to go back and make some tonight. <laughs> if I see a pig skull in the butchers, I will do it. I promise. Mm-hmm. There you go. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'd um, like to thank everybody for participating in the uh, chat today and for listening to the show. Um, uh, appreciate you guys. And uh, be sure to tune in to the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern uh, Daylight Time. Uh, if you are not in the Eastern Time Zone in the U.S., you can go to radio.sot.net uh, on Sunday, and the, your, the show airtime will be shown there in your in your local time. Um, so be sure to check that out, and uh, wish everybody a happy weekend. We will be back uh, next Friday. Thanks again. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye, guys.